0: Passing to have your company this Wednesday, the 2nd of September, day 2 of spring, and my gosh, uh, you feel like you can already start to smell Christmas. It's been a funny old year, but I I will not be surprised if they start wheeling out the Christmas paraphernalia in the next couple of weeks. Um, Thank you to everybody tuning in today. We've got a massive show coming up for you. But before we get to that, let's say hello to my co-host over at SBS HQ, Nick Stoll, aka Stollage. Stollage, how are you, my friend?
1: I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Just getting through the week. Uh, excited for today's show. We've got Sam and we've got Alex Wilkinson and Luke Braddon. So it's going to be a great show.
0: We've got a massively stacked show because, of course, over the weekend and uh, Monday morning, we've seen some massive football games played. But another massive identity here is the great Sam Lewis, our resident <laughs> football expert. <laughs> And also contributed to the World Game, The Guardian, and a litany of other publications. It's great to see your face again, Sammy. Have you recovered from the Champions League morning? Have you gotten some sleep, you've caught up, and all of it has it settled in?
2: I mean, a couple of sort of 10-hour sleeps, and I think I'm just starting to feel human again. But there was a point there where I was like, I think I can see through time now. So, yeah, I mean, it was great. It was totally worth staying up for. It was the same sort of vibe as when we stayed up to watch the Women's World Cup announcement. Like, I was up with my friends. It was just, it was the best. And it was a really good game to watch
0: as well. Let's talk about the game overall. Of course, all three of us were up and and ready to watch and and enjoyed the coverage as well. It was great for us at SBS to have some football back on our territory. But ultimately, the, the result I don't think surprised many. But did you expect more from Wolfsburg? Did you expect them to be more competitive, Sammy? I
2: think I did. Um, but it, my, I sort of have to qualify that because my expectations of both of these teams were sort of dependent on their results in the quarters and the semis. And Wolfsburg, I think, were quite dominant, obviously, against Glasgow, winning 9-1. Um, but their game against Barcelona was sort of the opposite of that. I think Barcelona were really unlucky not to go through. Whereas P- um, Leon, I think their game against Bayern was not their best, and mm. I think they sort of started to improve a little bit against PSG. So based on those sort of trajectories, I'm not super surprised at the result. Um, I do wish it was a it was a tighter game. I do wish it was a closer game because that makes for good watching. It makes for really entertaining football. Um, but I think ultimately it was the kind of performance that Leon's reputation uh, sort of builds for them like it was the kind of thing that we have always wanted to watch from them particularly in this competition um and it's just a, a really great reminder of how good women's football can be uh and how good a this women's team really is um and like it, they were just so good to watch you know regardless of how dominant they were and how much we think Wolfsburg maybe should have sort of stepped up and whatever it was just it was just so good to watch them like they're just such a classy
0: team they are a classy team. Kumagai's goal was my favourite um, of the morning. I thought it was just fantastic. And you, you go through the the quality of the players within this squad too, Stolich. Um, they're so impressive, uh, you know, highly decorated national team representatives, very highly experienced. I mean, you've had players that are competing in their seventh, eighth, ninth final. I mean, when you start to hear stats like that, it just really makes you stand up and appreciate just how impressive these individual athletes are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a very good thing for women's football. We're talking about this a little bit off air, but in terms of, you know, is their dominance good? Ideally, we'd like to see more teams competing at this level and more teams, you know, kind of getting to this stage. But Liana setting the bar so high, which I always think in sport is a good thing because it'll be up to the other teams to catch them. And I think that's a, just yeah, just a fantastic thing because now we know, you know, Barcelona and Wolfsburg and Chelsea and PSG and all the teams that are going to be coming from, they know where the bar is set and they know how they're going to get there. And I think they will because naturally in sport, these things always happen. You know, you're already starting to see uh, the, the other teams invest a lot of money, pick off some of the best players. So I think it's going to be really good. But, Leon, what they're doing is really fantastic. And, Sam, a question I have for you about their kind of success is, do you think their continued success, do you think they're kind of going to build maybe a legion of foreign fans because of the success that they're having uh, over these years? Because, you know, we see that in the men's game, that the success that the bigger teams have, you know, year after year after year leads to uh, supporters all over the world. Do you think uh, we might be seeing that as well, as well as the women game growing?
2: I mean, yeah, I think so. And I think a big part of that is the fact that Lyon are attracting so many quality internationals. You know, I think a lot of Australians are going to start to pay more attention to Leon because Ellie Carpenter is there now. Um, more, I know that a, a bunch of other sort of fans in and around Japan have been following Leon for a while because Kumagai is there and she's obviously a veteran of the Japanese national team. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I think more generally as well, the more internationals, particularly Australians, that go to these major clubs and the more success that these clubs have as a result of attracting all of these fantastic players the more those brands are going to spread, the more they're going to become much more popular and the more um, followers they're going to be able to generate around the world, uh, which is great, which is exactly what we need. Um, And one of the things that I've sort of noticed being in women's football for as long as I have is that fans tend to follow players more than they follow clubs.
0: Um, Mm -hmm.
2: But it, it seems now that... We've got, we're sort of going through a transition phase now, I think, where clubs are really starting to be the foundation sort of identity of of players now, and particularly in the FAWSL in England, which obviously has a huge history, a huge culture, um, and we're starting now to see players go there and to be really tangled up in that. So I think as a result of that, there's going to be some sort of perhaps symbiotic Kind of relationship where fans really start to get hooked onto certain clubs because they've followed players there who they've always adored um, which is great and that's i think what's what women's football has always needed because football is played at club level that is sort of the the heartbeat of the game it's at club level and i don't think women's football has really been um involved in the sort of club structures that has allowed that sort of culture to form up until this point. But now that we're seeing all these huge clubs come to the table finally um, and we're seeing all these players go across to, to join them, I think we're going to start to see a, a sort of a bigger cultural shift where so many more fans are starting to follow clubs as well as players.
0: Mm. A few more comments coming through from our fans. Uh, And welcome to all of you, our regular viewers as well. It's fabulous to see you jumping on for the stream once again. Katie Bayou, one of our top fans. Really fun game to watch. Couldn't agree more. Katie, John Kennedy, love watching the women's game. Bring on the Women's World Cup in 2023. Couldn't agree more. Good on you, Johnny. Um, I want to ask you about uh, Ellie Carpenter. Of course, she signed with Lyon in June. We weren't able to unfortunately see her get any minutes on the park in this Champions League campaign. And so much of that has to do with the fact that, Lucy Bronze, of course, pays in her position and she's just a a freak of a a footballer. But she is ending her time with Lyon. So many people have been saying that, of course, that Ellie is now going to be the heir uh, to that position and that she will be coming into that role once uh, Lucy Bronze departs. Um, uh, I think the commentator had actually said that the whispers that were doing the rounds were that um, Bronze would go back potentially to Manchester City, back home to the UK. But the experience and... um, and the exposure to this environment of course that Ellie would have gained now how invaluable is it for a player that's still so young to be in this kind of um, setting and 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 how much more are we going to see from Ellie Sam
2: Yeah it's it's so important and I think it, a good sort of parallel is the fact that Ellie Carpenter came into the Matilda setup when she was quite young and so she was able to gain those really serious tournament Experiences and have those in that international exposure at a really young age. And that's why we're now seeing her at 20 years old already being one of the best fullbacks in the world. So the fact that she's now gone to the best women's club on the planet and she's going to be surrounded by the best players on the planet. She's going to be training with and against them week in, week out. She's only going to get better. And I don't think it's, it's necessarily a bad thing that she didn't get on the, on the park. Um, during this Champions League. I mean, she's still obviously very new. She's still getting used to all these kinds of things. And As you said, like when you're coming up against Lucy Bronze and you're trying to sort of battle her for that position, you're not going to win. Like no matter sort of how good you are, like it's Lucy Bronze. Uh, She was voted the the third best player at Women's World Cup last year. You're just not going to get ahead of her. And the fact that she's been there for so long and is now obviously departing probably to go to Manchester City, the club probably would have wanted to give her a, a good send off. And I think they, they did that in allowing her to play the full 90 uh, in the final and allowing her to lift the trophy and all that sort of thing. So... Yeah, I mean, I think regardless um, regardless of that, Ellie is obviously a big part of Leon's plans. And we know that because she signed a three-year deal, which is really, really rare in women's football. I don't know how many people watching would know this, but a three-year deal, there's only really a handful of players in the whole world who have something like that. Um, deals usually last for a year, and a big, a big reason for that is because... They have had to try and cobble together um, a year-round playing calendar by jumping across various leagues because they don't—they just don't run for long enough. So contracts tend to be very, very short. Um, they only really in the, in the past couple of years have lasted one to two years. So a three year deal is massive and it shows a, a, a serious amount of initiative from Leon that they wanted to invest in this player for that long because they obviously see how much potential she has. And they want to make sure that she is able to step up and perhaps even surpass what Lucy Bronze has been able to do for them, which would ultimately be just the best possible thing, not just for Ellie, but for us, because mm-hmm. she's, a, she's a Matilda. And so by the time she gets to the end of her contract, it's going to be the Women's World Cup. She's going to be perhaps in the best form of her entire life. And she's already one of the best players on the team. So, like, I'm just I'm so excited to see what she does. She's going to get so much more experience, not just in France, but in Europe. She's going to learn so much. And, yeah, it's just it's going to be the best.
0: It seems as though Europe is the place to be at this point. I mean, we've seen a host of our players depart, uh, particularly over to the UK now. And you can't blame them, Sam, because they're looking for stability and they're wanting to play in Europe to chase European glory as well. It's something that, of course, they'd love to add to their resumes. But what are, apart from the obvious, what are some of the driving factors for these players in, in leaving to go to Europe?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the sort of the Matilda's exodus from the W League has been a big talking point um, for the last couple of months, really ever since Sam Kerr uh, decided to go to Chelsea. We've seen this sort of huge wave of players now following her, particularly to England and France uh, and Norway. Um, And, I mean, I think we can't, you know, you can't underestimate the fact that, These are leagues and clubs that are finally providing these players with the kind of professional uh, career stability that they have always wanted. You know, they're just like any other worker. They want to be able to work in an environment that supports them, um, that is able to pay them a living wage, that is able to do all the kinds of things that we expect to be done for professional footballers. Like these women haven't had that. Our current generation of Matildas came up in the W League when it was still largely an amateur to a semi-professional competition, and really, it's not even a professional competition yet either. So, this is for a lot of our Matildas. This is the first time that they've ever experienced a full, like a full-time, fully professional football season. Which is just extraordinary considering how long women's football has been going on. And it's now just the norm when it comes to the men's game. We don't expect these kinds of male players to be jumping back and forth across leagues to try and put together something resembling a full-time career. So Mm -hmm. that is a huge, huge factor for these players, particularly for those who have had to jump across W League and NWSL because that cycle has just been exhausting and we've seen it affect international performances like Steph Catley for example has spoken quite a lot about the fact that having to go back and forth across these two leagues has really fatigued her to the point where she developed injuries and that affects our national team performances and if our Matildas aren't performing well internationally that filters down into the enthusiasm and the culture of Australian football more generally. So we need our Matildas to be performing at their best because the knock-on effects of that is that people are going to be more interested in the W League. They're going to be more interested in football more generally. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the, the sort of the driving forces behind them going. But also, like, these are clubs that these players have followed since they were kids. They're just mm-hmm. like us. Like, they're also fans of the game. So if you get an opportunity to go and join a club that you've been watching on the telly since you were four, of course mm-hmm. you're going to go and do it. You know, these, these are these are historic fantastic, you know, cultural clubs. They're, they're part of the history of the game. And I, I think a lot of people perhaps tend to forget that these players, they're not just chasing money and they're not just chasing a fully professional environment. They're also chasing the opportunity to represent the badge you know, that's something that they care about as much as they care about anything else. So, yeah, so, so it's that. It's the, it's the increased competitiveness of the leagues that they're going to be participating in. They're going to be playing more games. They're going to have multiple competitions to participate in as well. It's not just the league but cup competitions, European competitions. And Europe is obviously the emerging powerhouse of women's football internationally. So they're going to have so much more experience against the kinds of national team players that they're going to be coming up against in 2023. So it's the, it's the best move that any Australian player can make, in my opinion.
0: Stolich, you could also imagine that the players would be thinking about the fact that the Women's World Cup is three years away and in addition to that, the Olympics, which is something that, um, you know, so many of us have acknowledged that this team is the golden generation of the Matildas, but so many of them would also be thinking that this is going to be the best possible way to gain experience, to further their own development, but also to have stability leading up to such crucial moments in their careers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just get the best of, of all worlds. You know, you get the you get more stability, you get better resources, you know, even even with the salaries aren't comparable to the men's game. You know, for example, if you play for Barcelona women's team, you get the same access to the same facilities, the same physios, the same everything, which is vitally important for an athlete at any level. You're playing against the best players as well. That's gonna massively improve your game as well. You're in countries where football is talked about and obsessed about 24 7 that helps your game as well so there's so many reasons uh for players to go overseas unfortunately for us you know obviously we would like them to you know we would like the best leagues to be in australia but a league w league it's going to be like that the best league is most likely always going to be in europe and that's where you know we have to accept that that uh is the case and for us the best thing that can happen is the matildas do really well because that will improve the domestic league as well because we'll have even more players wanting to play the game. So I think it's a great move that uh, all these players are making. I think it was really good to see with Ellie, you know, obviously she didn't get on and, you know, in a, in a Freud way, I was hoping that Lucy Bronze would get injured so that, you know, every time like, oh, come on, just pull a hamstring or something, roll an ankle and get Ellie on. But it was good to see they really did include her in all the celebrations, you know, like sometimes it can be weird, especially you've come in, you haven't played any minutes, you can almost feel like, oh, It's not really my trophy. It's not really my thing. But it was important to see that that team is really encouraging her. They're including her in every celebration. She's dancing with them. She's getting involved in that. That will greatly help uh, her on the field as well because she'll do this much better. So I I think it's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to um, this season of the English season as well. And We saw Sam Kerr in the uh, Community Shield on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So there's so much to look forward to uh, from the women's game. Uh, and the, the Aussies playing in Europe, as opposed to the men, who we're going to talk about a bit later. But there's barely any men, uh, Socceroos, playing in the top leagues in Europe anymore. So it makes for a nice change, at least on one side.
0: Mm, certainly does. Couldn't agree more. One final question before we let you go, Sam. Um, what do we know about the W League? We've spoken about this mags, mass exodus and I think one of the major concerns that I have is what it's going to do to the quality of the W League here. But given the fact that we have gone su- through such a tumultuous period, no thanks to COVID-19, a lot of ca- uh, da- uh, doubts have been cast over what we know about the W League's future. But where are we at at this point in time?
2: Yeah, we don't know a lot. Um, I think a a big reason for that, though, is because FFA have been focusing almost all of their energies on getting the A-League season completed. So I don't really blame them for sort of dragging their heels a little bit when it comes to W-League planning. Um, They haven't been neglecting it by any measure, but FFA have copped quite a lot um, in terms of having to lay off staff as a result of COVID. So they've really only had a handful of people trying to get all this stuff done over the last couple of months. And the fact that they have been able to restart the A-League after shutting it down, and getting towards the grand final and having that and pulling that off is is pretty extraordinary when you sort of understand what's been happening to them behind the scenes. But now that the A-League has, has finished, I think now attention is turning more seriously to the W-League. Um, there was a report by Anna Harrington recently saying that the season could possibly begin at the start of next year. Um, I'm hearing it's, it's probably a little bit um, later this year, maybe in December, mid-December. Um, we're already starting to see a couple of clubs take the initiative in announcing their teams. Uh, Sydney FC announced their squad last month. We've seen Western Sydney Wanderers starting to announce some players. Um, I think Adelaide's probably going to start announcing players soon as well um, and I think we're also going to possibly see uh, the the expansion club um, start to ramp up the sort of the process behind that like I, I know that there is um, uh, an application form that's being put together for any interested clubs who want to um, apply for a W League licence and that should be going out at some point this month, I think. Um, So there is the possibility that something could happen there and I'm also sort of hoping that they finally get on uh, on with introducing Home and Away. Um, That's something that's so overdue and I feel like this is probably the perfect opportunity to, to do it. Um, But, again, it's also going to depend on what happens to leagues around the world as well because we we still do have a relationship with the NWSL. Obviously, we saw a number of really amazing uh, American players come to the W League last season. Um, But their competitions are a little bit up in the air. I think at the moment they've they've just proposed something like a a fall series, which is sort of another kind of Challenge Cup tournament, uh, like a knockout competition that's going to last until perhaps the lead-up to the start of the W League, whenever that is. Uh, so whether we can get the same kinds of players across to the W League from the NWSL is still a, a bit of a question mark. Um, we're not, obviously, this W League season is not going to be as good as ones in the past because we've lost our Matildas. And that's fine. That's the, the natural life cycle of this kind of thing. Um, this is going to be a season where clubs heavily lean into local players, into youth players, which is good, which is what actually we need. Because when we think about the Matilda setup more generally, Everybody knows who the senior players are. Almost nobody knows who the young Matildas are. Nobody knows who, who the players are who are going to be stepping up and possibly putting themselves on the radar for 2023 selection. Like, we don't know, for example, who is the next number six who's going to replace Lise Kellenard and Ivy Luke, who are starting to get on in, in age a little bit. Who's the next centre-back coming through? We don't know. These are players who are coming through the MPL. They're players who are now going to start to have the opportunity to make a name for themselves on the W League stage because their Matildas have shuffled off. So I think even though the quality might not be there, may not be the best football ever, that's a sacrifice that we have to make as fans in, in being able to, to still show up and get bums on seats and to support the players because these are the kinds of structures and opportunities that these next generation of Matildas need uh, in order to, sort of further their own development and ultimately the knock-on effects of that are going to be so much better for the W League generally and for the national team so I think sacrificing just one or two seasons of kind of not very good football is going to be worth it for that
0: well we certainly hope so Sam it's been such a delight to have your company with us here on the World Game Live we're chatting to you almost weekly now and that's why (laughs) of your own because you are exceptional we appreciate your thoughts and your contributions to women's football stay safe take care of yourself and we'll be in touch soon thanks so much Likewise. Thanks, guys. Yes, great to have Sam's company there. It's time now to welcome our next special guest for the show. I'm expecting that um, Wilco's recovered from the partying antics that would have taken place over the weekend after the grand final celebrations. Wilco, great to see you. Thanks so much for making the time to chat to us. First of all, congratulations. What an amazing feat. Sydney FC creating history, going back to back again and and, and ultimately setting the bar across the A-League now. um, It's been a real joy to see this team, particularly over the last sort of, you know, period Period under Graham Arnold, and that's now extended over to, to Steve Corica. To see them doing so well, it's just been a real pleasure to see. But tell us, how are you going, and have you recovered from all the celebrations yet?
3: Yeah, just thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, just um, just recovered today. Uh, I think it's a little bit different this year, obviously with COVID and, and stuff. So it's, it's a, we've been a little, little bit limited in in what we could do. But um, yeah, it was it was a great night on Sunday, as um, as you said. It's it's been a crazy ride over these last. Um, four or five seasons at Sydney FC. The amount of success we've been able to have is um, has been unbelievable, and you know the credit's got to go to um, you know the playing group because we managed to keep um, a lot of the players together. But I mean, saying that the being able to do that is the only way we can do that is with the club um, and the recruitment, um, you know, allowing us to do so. So, you know, to to Bimbi and to our you know CEO. Um, Danny and and Scott, they've been fantastic in um, keeping the core groups together. And then obviously when there are changes each year, um, inevitably in football, um, the people they brought in have have done an excellent job in in fitting in.
0: Mm, But the culture of the club is so strong, Wilco. That's one of the things that I've really observed about this Sydney FC team, the overall club environment. I mean, there's such a a great sense of togetherness. Who do you attribute that to? Does that come from your coach? Does it come from your CEO, the owner? Who builds that effectively?
2: Yeah, I think
3: it comes through all parts of the club. It's got to come, obviously, from the top to start with, I think. With culture, you know, it's got to be, got to be from the top down. So it obviously comes from Danny. It comes from um, Stevie. You know, he's he's done a great job of, of um, you know, maintaining and, and building the culture within the club. And then obviously it's on us as players in the dressing room to make sure that that it flows and continues on. And um, you know, we've got a, a fantastic culture in Sydney. We talk about it a lot. Um, and and a lot of that, as I said before, comes down to recruitment as well. You know, when we're looking for players, we're they don't only look for, for quality additions on the pitch, but they look for good people off it that are going to fit in and, um, you know, fit in seamlessly, which, which definitely helps. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it sort of goes all the way through the organisation, but, you know, it's built on winning and, and it's built on family and, and built on, um, you know, everyone getting on really well, both on and off the pitch.
1: Mm. Stolich, over to you. Yeah, Alex, I wanted to ask uh, for the grand final itself. You know, the first 20 minutes, it did seem like uh, City were kind of on top and, you know, they they were pressing really well and they had that disallowed goal. Uh, I just wanted to know what did that feel like in the game and, and how did that change happen? Was there something, was there a tactical thing? Was there just something within you? Did the disallowed goal give you a bit of hope and, okay, guys, let's reset, let's get You know, Jamie McLaren seemed to be getting in behind a lot less after that period. Was that something that, you know, you and McGowan uh, spoke about at any point?
3: Yeah, I think you're right in, in saying that they definitely settled a little bit quicker. I think um, they put us under quite a bit of pressure in that first 15, 20 minutes. They had a few half chances and then, Obviously, the, the disallowed goal, which sort of kicked us into gear a bit. But I think it was just a matter of letting the game play out a little bit and and, and settling down and keeping the ball a little bit. Um, you know, that first 20 minutes, we were trying to rush things a bit too much. We turned over possession too much and and then just found ourselves sort of chasing a little bit. But, um, you know, I thought we ended that uh, that first half really well. And then the second half, I thought we were, uh, we were quite good. We created a, a lot of chances. Um, Tommy Glover had an outstanding game, made some really mm-hmm. great saves. Um And, you know, if it wasn't for him, we might have been able to finish it in normal time. But, um, yeah, I thought, as you said, we started a little bit slow but sort of built into it as the game went.
0: Um, I have to also congratulate you on making the PFA team of the season. We saw a host of Sydney Sydney FC players feature within that lineup, which is just great to see. But talk through sort of the roles and responsibilities of being the captain of this side as well. And what are some of the important things when it comes to sort of guiding and mentoring some of the younger players that we've seen coming through? Yeah,
3: look, uh, I mean, it's in a way, it's, it's it's an easy job to be skipper of Sydney FC because we've got a lot of players in the dressing room who are highly experienced, who you know played a lot of time in the A League, but also um, overseas for the national teams and whatnot. So in, in that sense, it can be, be you know, quite an easy job. But um, you know, over the last sort of six or seven weeks, um, you know, it's been important, obviously, with us winning the premiership and. Um, you know, still having four or five games to go with our form dipping a little bit, it's just it's been important to make sure everyone stays positive because you know we we don't forget to play football overnight in, in situations like that, and it was just a uh, you know important to make sure everyone was still relaxed and and um, not forgetting how successful the season had already been. So um, you know to go into that semi final and then obviously the final and and um, back up that that premiership um, was was fantastic.
0: We've had some um, questions coming through from the fans and one from one of our regulars. How does winning the K League compare to the A League? Also, the differences in the technical level of both leagues, he'd like to know.
3: Uh, well, obviously, the, the K League's a little bit different in the fact that they don't have the final series, obviously. So um, they're just, uh, their system is similar to Europe where it's first past the post. The team with the most points wins the championship. So... Uh, that was different in one de- in one degree but um in terms of the technical ability look i think it's 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 rather similar i think at um you know the korean players are are very good technically they're great on the ball they're comfortable on the ball um but you know we've got a lot of australian players who are who are very similar and um one of the main differences i noticed within my team over there you know it might be different in others that there was a lot more focus on the the tactical side of the game here in australia i think um there's a lot more focus on um, build-up, possession, keeping the ball, what to do when you don't have the ball and whatnot here in Australia. I think in Korea, in with my coach, it was a little bit more, um, I guess, off the cuff and we relied probably a little bit more on, on our um, star players or, or foreigners to, to get us through games. So that was probably one of the major differences I sort of saw within the two leagues.
0: And Michael Ong via Facebook, great to have your company once again, Michael, good afternoon to you. Wilco, who was the most difficult player you came up against this season, Diamante, McLaren?
3: Yeah, look, for, probably for different reasons, Diamante's, you know, his vision and his um, ability to, you know, drop a ball on a dime anywhere in behind you can be difficult, so it's sort of whenever he's got time, <coughs> excuse me, time on the ball, you've got to be ready to turn and and, and run back as quickly as possible because he can literally put a ball anywhere um, and Mac is sort of Macca would work perfectly with Diamante in behind him because Macca's always on your shoulder he's always looking to make runs in behind you and as a defender that's probably the thing you like least you know for me I'd, I'd much rather come up a guy uh, against a guy who's you know six foot six and always getting the ball to beat because you know essentially they're not going to bother you in behind but you know for for someone like Jamie he's always on your shoulder always making runs in behind you and as a defender you're always having to check yourself so He's, um, he's always, he's always difficult to mark. And that's why he's so successful in that sort of 18 yard box. He's always in the right spot.
0: We've also got you on today before I bounce over to Stollage to ask um, some questions. We've also got you today in your PFA presidency capacity, which is really great because, um, you know, there's so much uncertainty doing the rounds at the moment um, with respect to when the season's going to start. What's the salary cap going to look like? um, Will it be dramatically reduced? I know that FFA and PFA are are currently embroiled in some negotiations, um, so we're not privy to too much information. But what can you tell us uh, about what we know in terms of when the season? could even restart?
3: Yeah, in terms of the, the season restart, we're not really too sure at the moment. Um, it's been sort of floated that originally it was looking like December um, and then more recently there was talk that it could be pushed back into January possibly. I mean, obviously from the club's point of view, they don't particularly um, want to start a season um, behind closed doors or with limited um, capacities to to fill stadiums. Obviously they're already feeling the pinch um uh, after this uh, latest period over the last three or four months, with not being able to fill stadiums and and whatnot, so I think um, ideally for them and us as players, you know, we'd love to play in front of fans. So, what that means um, and whether a month, you know, a uh, delay from December to January is going to fix that, we're not too sure. And you know, we're not too sure if um, you know they're looking at hub models or whatnot again for next season. So. Um, Look, it's obviously been uh, a pretty tough period the last four or five months for all the players. You know, they've uh, sacrificed, you know, a hell of a lot to finish that um, A-League season off, Um, you know, being away from families, friends, um for extended periods of time and and all that on you know really heavily reduced wages um is is a huge sacrifice and we see now even you know now that the season's finished we've got brisbane players we've got wellington players who still aren't home they're in quarantine at the moment by themselves in hotel rooms for 14 days which is you know um you know just huge sacrifice so Look, we as players, we want to obviously work together with the with the FFA and the clubs on on, on uh, reaching a deal um, as soon as possible because essentially we've got 80 or 90 players who are off contract as of yesterday and are pretty unsure about their futures. But And on the same hand, we've also got um, a lot of players who have existing contracts for this next season and, you know, aren't too sure on, on what that uh, means to them either.
1: Stolich, over to you. Yeah, Wilco, as the president of the PFA, obviously you'd speak to a lot of players all the time about kind of the big issues around the league. I just wanted to know what is kind of the ideal setup in terms of the players' perspective for the league? You know, we always are talking about, is it better to go from summer or winter, promotion, relegation, second division, you know, more teams, expanding the league. What is it kind of that you guys are hoping the direction the league moves into?
3: I think I think the players want all of those things you just spoke about. I think, you know, ideally, that's what we want. We want more teams. More teams equals more jobs for for upcoming players and, and, and you know, football in Australia. Um, we want promotion relegation because, you know, we have situations um, in Australia where, you know, five, six weeks out from the end of the season, the top six nearly is decided and the other, you know, four or five teams don't have too much to play for and, you know, that would completely fix that. But you know, it's, it's, it's when we can get them off the ground and the cost involved and, um, you know, how we implement that um, at the most cost-effective way and, and is it affordable? And I think, you know, that's the debate that's seen weekly or, or whenever we talk about this stuff. It's it's all related to money and and um, cost-effectiveness, I guess. So, you know, ideally we'd love all those things um, to be implemented in our league. It's just um, when and, and if and how we can, uh, I guess, implement them.
0: I think one of the frustrating things about all of this, Wilco, is that the players have had to already make, I mean, you listed there, being away from their families, uh, you know, playing on reduced salaries. They've already had to make so many sacrifices. And I penned an article last week saying that, Pretty much, you know, enough is enough, and that the that the players shouldn't have to continue to shoulder the mistakes of the A-League clubs and the governing body. With the greatest of respect, I say that. But what are the players prepared to do for next season? I mean, we know that salaries are effectively going to to either be halved uh, to fifty percent or thirty percent. But what would they be prepared to sacrifice going into next season, knowing that the economy of the league at the moment is really in dire straits?
3: Yeah, look, I think the, the players are naive in the fact that they know that uh, the game's taken a hit and it's not just football, it's sport all over the world and, and probably, you know, businesses in, 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 in every profession have, have taken a hit because of COVID. So that we're, we're, we're in no way naive about that fact. I think it's just that we want to make sure when we do reach an agreement it's it's fair and equitable on, on both sides. And as you mentioned, we've already given up a lot in the last four or five months, like... Um, you know essentially we played for you know, everyone across the league played for seventeen percent of their wage plus jobkeeper and you know some of um some of the clubs were great in the fact that if they were able to they um you know would would contribute more to the players but you know some clubs weren't in the financial position to be able to do that, so the players you know played on that on that seventeen percent plus jobkeeper so they've already given up you know a hell of a lot which is a huge sacrifice, and so we just want to make sure within this next negotiation that um, you know, it's fair, as I mentioned, and, and that we can come to some sort of agreement that, you know, not only the players are happy with, but the other parties are happy with
1: as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Solic, over to you. A few more questions before we wrap up with Wilco.
1: Yeah, Wilco, I wanted to ask, you know, there's been a lot of praise for Ryan Grant uh, after the final. Just how important uh, is he to the team? What does he bring? Because obviously now he's in the Socceroos as well. Um, you know, he scored now in two A-League Grand Finals. And it felt like when he got injured towards the back end of the season that, you know, you guys were struggling a little bit. I don't know if that just coincided with the end of the regular season into the finals. But what does he bring to the team? And what does it miss when he's not there?
3: Yeah, he's, he's hugely important for us. He's, um, you know, over the last three or four years, he's just grown immensely um, as a player and um, just that energy that he brings, you know, you see it through the TV screens, the amount of um, positivity, uh, energy, the ability to sort of get up and down and, and the way we play at Sydney, it's so um, important I guess getting forward that our fullbacks um, are involved in the attack you know the way we attack we like to bring our tens inside and and have our fullbacks overlapping and and creating a lot of play for us and um, his ability to sort of run all day and and uh, get up and down for not only um, you know providing a lot of help for us in attack but he somehow manages to get back and and defend um, very very well as well so and just his ability to do it all game, like literally, I think it was the semi-final against Perth, it was like the 89th minute, we're up 2-0 and he's making these 90 metre runs, he didn't get the ball, twice in a row he did it, and um, it's, it's crazy. So, you know, he's hugely important to us, he's had an unbelievable year, and for me he was, um, you know, far and away the best player on the pitch the other night, he was it was fully deserved to get the Joe Marsden medal. <laughs>
0: What about you, Wilco? How much more have you got left to give us? Um, We know we're conscious of your age, you're 36, but, you know, there are players that can continue going on and playing into their 50s. (laughs) So what what can we expect to see from you in the next few years? What are your ambitions?
3: Um, Yeah, well, I'm I'm contracted next year with Sydney, so um, obviously I've got that year left. Um, And then after that we'll just sort of play it by year. Once you get to over 35, you sort of play it it year by year and see how the body's feeling. Um, So far... Um this year the uh, you know my my body was great I didn't have any sort of niggly injuries um, managed to get through all the games which was great so you know if I can continue like that um uh, you know I'd love to play on um but you know that's gotta um, be reciprocated from the club as well i guess and you know as i said we'll 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 um assess it a bit later um throughout the next season and and see what happens then but post football I'm not not too sure yet um whether I want to get into the coaching stuff or you know the business admin Um, side of the game sort of interests me as well. So um, I'd like to stay involved in the game somehow, but in in what capacity, we'll just have to wait and see.
0: Well, we hope you do stay involved in the game. One of our resident smartasses here on the World Game Live every week is Ryan McGowan. (laughs) Who has made himself, <laughs> who's made a name for himself by trolling his teammates. <laughs> he's come out and said play until he's 40. Uh, more comments from him. Ryan Grant is Sydney FC. Another one, Ryan, uh, Ryan McGowan, thanks for the last night skipper. It just,
3: it's just
1: horrendous.
3: He's in it's the airport the, mountain in Dubai now. He's bored, that's why. He's got nothing to do. <laughs> is he the,
1: still celebrating? It seems like he's still probably. celebrating.
3: Yeah. <laughs> he's had sixteen hours on a flight to celebrate, so who knows what sort of state he's in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just keep thinking about that flight scene on Wolf of Wall Street. I know I shouldn't, but I mean after a grand final win, who knows what could happen. Another one from Ryan McGowan. What's your favorite takeaway on your cheat day, Wilco? He wants to know.
3: i can tell you what his favorite is. He's notorious for slushies from seven eleven. Every day in summer after training he's down the local shell station, which is a couple of minutes away from training. He knows the guy behind the desk by name now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I reckon they know he's ordered too. That's disgusting. <laughs> Ryan McGow, we've got to get a new cheat meal. Uh yeah. Skipper, it's been wonderful to have your company here today. Thank you so much for joining us. We wish you all the best in both your roles as the PFA president because I know that there's a lot to navigate through in the next few months and also as a player um for your next year with Sydney FC. It's been such a delight to watch this team perform so well on and off the field and a real joy to have your company here today on the show thanks for making the time for us Wilco thank you guys appreciate having me good man Alex Wilkinson there we always love Ryan McGowan what a top lad every time one of his teammates is on the show I'm expecting him to stick around for Luke Bratton who's going to be joining us shortly as well but he can two dollars can't beat it he loves his slushies he absolutely loves them it's just like drinking a bag of sugar Stolic, Have you ever had one of those dirty slushies
1: Oh, yeah, of course, when I was a teenager. But I just would expect if you could become a professional footballer, surely you've been that kind of stuff. I mean, the thing is, if you're going to have a cheat meal, have a, have a decent meal. Don't have someone that loses a flavour after three sips. You're basically yeah. just getting coloured ice. Like, I don't know. I yeah. just think I think Ryan McGowan, I think he needs to elevate his cheat meal. I think he can he'd be doing even better cheat meals.
0: Uh, look at him. He keeps going. He can't help himself. Get the pony on flight leaves in 20 minutes. He's brilliant. Ryan McGowan, keep it coming. We absolutely love your banter. We rate you tuning in and giving your teammates a bit of stick as well. It's always a bit of fun. Switching gears a bit to um, a point that Taz Yonardis has made. Lucy, how many owners who have come and left who lost millions Stop painting a narrative that the players are the Messiahs? Guess what, Taz? The players are the Messiahs. You know why? Because without the players, there is no damn game to worship or to follow. So we have the players to thank and to credit for everything that they've gone through throughout this COVID period. These are not players who are on multi-million dollar contracts. These are players who perhaps there are some Australians out there who are making a hell of a lot more than what they are. So we need to start respecting the sacrifices and the achievements that the players have made and have contributed to. And we also need to understand that, yes, the owners have suffered a lot. And I'm not directing my blame at the owners. I'm directing my blame. Actually, some owners could could stand to cop it from some of their misdecisions that they've made over the years. But I'm directing my hatred and my anger towards those who have been in position of power and who are custodians of the game who have mistreated it, who have neglected it, and who haven't given it the love that it deserves. So those are people like the FFA board, like former FFA CEOs, and they stand to remain um, as, as the subjects of my criticisms because it's their responsibility to take care of this game, to promote it, to nurture it, and to ensure that it thrives and survives. So if they're not going to do that, then they need to be painted as the wrong ones in this scenario. Stolich, anything to add to that?
1: Well, i just add to that that the owners wanted more power and they got it through the yeah. Congress. And well, look what's happened. You know, now obviously no one saw COVID coming and that has to be kind of included in our discussions, but... I just think the owners aren't blameless. And, I, you know, I really respect the owners who have come in and poured in money. But just because you're pouring money, to me, you still retain the power of how to run that club. So you need to take responsibility for the decisions that you make. Why, you know, it's your responsibility to employ people, to engage the community, to lift crowds, to lift interest in your team. You know, the league itself is struggling and there's always going to be limitations on because you're a league and you have to kind of act as one. There's only so much you can do, but some clubs have been much better at engaging the community than others. I think that's vitally important. So, you know, and I just think because, okay, there's this idea where I poured millions into the club, therefore I can't be blamed. And it's like, well, hold on. If I bought a cafe and I poured money into that, and then the cafe was getting no customers, it'd be like, oh, well, I put in money. You can't blame me. It's like, no, 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 hold on. Like, Let's talk about who did you employ to manage that company? You know, who did you? So, I understand, like, listen, we don't want to, like, just slag owners for slagging them, but that's not what we're doing. We're just saying, like, the players are having to sacrifice a lot, and I think it's a very good point that you make that, well, when you like, at a certain point, you can't just say, just play for free. Like, you know, it starts to get ridiculous. They need to have a living wage, and they need to... The league's going to suffer if not. So I think it's very important that everyone comes together and makes the right decisions, but I also think it's very important that we have accountability for all these people in power. We always... We're always pushing each other saying, you know, how can we get better? Even actually, I put out a tweet a couple of days ago, which I think, you know, a few people got their feathers ruffled by it. I said, Sydney FC are doing absolutely wonderful things on the pitch three years in a row or or three out of four championships. The most successful team nearly in Australian football history, but they still have less members than the Wanderers. And my question Mm -hmm. is, well, you know, I think that Sydney FC, if I'm running Sydney FC, I go, guys, fantastic work on the pitch. Now I want to see how we can capitalise this off the pitch. I want to get 20,000 members. I want to really build our connections in the community. I want to make sure that, you know, Sydney FC is the winning team. If you're a Sydney FC member, you're a member of the winning team and that's our brand and that's everything we stand for. And I just think you need to, it's, it's hard to do it when your team's losing every week. We all know it's hard to go every week when your team's losing and they're struggling every year. But when you're winning, that's when you need to make the most of it because there's going to be times where your success slips. And that's when you're going to need that big membership to, to hold you down. And I just hope that happens with Sydney FC. That's what I'd be looking for if I was running Sydney FC right now. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's a really good point that you make because it's something that um, Marco Rudan alluded to as well when I caught up with him prior to the season starting. So this is going back over a year ago now. And he said, it's interesting to me that Sydney FC can achieve so much success on the field, but why haven't they been able to attract that in membership numbers? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, and, and it's not just Sydney FC who can be grouped into this, but I don't know that the clubs do enough when it comes to community work. And that's that's always been something that I've been quite cognizant of because when you consider that... That once sort of, you know, Southern expansion had started to put their hand up and say that they wanted a team out in their region, that Sydney FC only then decided to go and start forging relationships with those out, um, like the Wollongong Wolves, for example. And you're thinking, why has it taken you 14, close to 15 years to do that? They should already have these established relationships with a lot of these NPL-based clubs within their areas. And if they're not nurturing those relationships, then how can they expect fans to turn up? I mean, we can't heap everything on the fans all the time and say, well, you need to come. You need to support the league. Well, they need to have that kind of respect and that kind of encouragement to do so from those teams, and and proof that there is this intent to connect with the community and to bring them in and have it be like a family environment. I mean, I know that that's something that Western Sydney Wanderers have in spades because they've just been fortunate enough that there's such a rich tapestry of those. Born out in Western Sydney that love football that want to be a part of football and I mean I don't know that we'll see a franchise like that replicated again where it's an instant hit of success. So clubs really need to work on that right across the board, um, and it's it's really interesting to see how they they manoeuvre things now going forward. Um, I know that a little bit later on we're going to talk about membership numbers when it comes to Macarthur and we've seen some controversial figures come out from them overnight with respect to their membership prices and we'll touch on that later shortly. Of course we will. Be having Luke Bratton join us um, to talk about, you know, his reaction to the grand final success. Um, I know it's a very Sydney-themed show, but, of course, we did have Alex Wilkinson on in his PFA capacity to talk about all the uncertainty around that. Stolid we're hearing several rumours around when the potential restart date for the competition could be. I'm hearing now some saying that it could be December. I know that when I caught up with Greg O'Rourke a couple of months ago, he said that it could kick off just prior to Christmas, but then I'm also hearing potentially February next year um Wilco touched on it already saying that the uncertainty hasn't been great you've got a a whopping list of players up to 80 to 90 that are off contract as of yesterday um you know what what do we know have we received any other intel
1: not really and I think this is the frustration is it's very hard to plan for next season it's very difficult to work out what's going to happen I mean Fans don't know what's going on. I don't even think you can buy memberships to a lot of uh, teams for next season because they don't know what, how many home games they're going to get or exactly you know how to price everything, although you know, we'll talk about MacArthur in a minute. But, you know, I, I think it's a frustrating thing. But I, I think the point to make uh, with this is that, you know, we come here, we, we say absolutely congratulations to Sydney FC. They've had a wonderful, wonderful season. You know, the coaches, the players, the staff, you know, throughout the team, there, there's been so much success there. But we're just always looking to try and you know, improve the game? How can we make it better? How can we grow it? And I think that's an important thing to say. But in regards to next season, yeah, they really need to work this out quite quickly. But I guess they need to work out how much of the player is going to be paid, you know, exactly what the conditions are going to be in and what the budgets are going to be like. I don't know. It does seem like we're in a real precarious position and we really need, you know, this is where it's going to be a huge test of the likes of James Johnson and Gregor Rourke to really get this over the line. Um, because, you know, as uh, uh, Wilkinson said, the players are willing to make sacrifice. And they were talking about how they're on JobKeeper plus 16%, which you know, I think JobKeeper is about 1500 a fortnight. So you're looking at less than two grand a fortnight, which is pretty low money for, uh, you know, what these guys would be used to and, and what their bills and stuff would be. So it's a tough one. But. I don't know. It's, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. I just hope they sort it out as soon as possible so we can start sorting out all the things that will go with it and the fans can start planning their seasons and and the teams can start planning because I think a lot of players will change clubs as well. Mm, I'm just
0: getting some intel that we're working on getting a link to Luke Bratton now who hasn't apparently received the knowledge so we might need to work on our technical end there to make sure that he's gotten everything <laughs> I've told him to check his junk mail. I've told him to get right. on board. You know, we've got Ryan McGowan up our arse saying, get the pony on. We're doing our best. We're doing our absolute best in these trying times, all right? It's trying for everyone, the players, the media, all of us, we're struggling. So we'll um, make sure, Stolich, that we'll double check and um, resend that link out to, uh, to the great Luke Bratton, who will be joining us shortly. Of course, so much uncertainty around whether or not the W League um, will also resume in its original format. Uh, there have been a lot of discussions about how much of a disgrace it would be if the W League was to take any kind of a hit, given that we are looking to host the Women's World Cup in 2023. So there have been a lot of discussions doing the rounds. We know, as I said earlier, that both FFA and PFA are currently in negotiations to determine what's going on for next season. A lot of uncertainty around when the competition will restart. As we've already heard owners are reportedly already agitating for salary reductions between 30 to 50 percent which should see them take a massive massive hit I mean you know when we talk about these things with respect to the players as I said earlier everyone imagines that footballers are paid really handsomely perhaps if you're in top clubs over there in Europe and China and elsewhere but in the A-League we're talking about different salaries here different wages unfortunately so you know for a lot of these players they've they've got families um, a large percentage of them wouldn't be able to continue playing on in the current climate if they're the wage reductions were to be that significant storage so you know we're talking about the livelihood of these men and that's what this ultimately boils down to but also the, the the female players as well i mean there are so many changes that we want to see in the game going forward we know that the w league season also has to be extended this isn't something where we can continue making the same mistakes again and expecting change so but i i just wonder given everything that's going on with COVID, are we asking for too much
1: no, I don't think so. I mean, we have to adjust and adapt. And, you know, I thought it was interesting talking to Wilkinson and asking him what did the players, what kind of changes did they want to see? And that they, you know, he said that the players want a second division. They want more teams. They, they want promotion, relegation, all this kind of stuff. And that's the kind of thing that the fans want. And I think it's it's weird when you have, you know, the two most important parts of football, the players and the fans. And when they, the players want it, the fans want it. So what's going on at this administration level? And, you know, FA, they're there. The state federations are there. The clubs as well. What is happening? And I just wonder if every league in the world, more or less, every country in the world has a second division promotion relegation. you know, why can't we? You know, we're, we're a relatively rich country. I know in, in football we don't get all that much investment, but, You're telling me that, you know, we can't sustain an A-League, but, you know, there are many countries in the third world that can sustain leagues. Like, I know it's not the same level. The salaries are a bit different. You have to pay people based on how much it costs to live here. The cost of living in Australia is a lot more. But sometimes I just think we make a lot of excuses when we shouldn't, when we really should say, guys, it can't be this hard, all right? It cannot be this hard to work it all out. It works everywhere else in the world. Let's follow one of those models. Let's, you know, adjust it to... What needs to be done to us? But I just think a lot of it is there's a lot of short-term thinking in Australian football and I think it really hurts the game and I just would like to see uh, that improve. But I believe one thing that's going to improve is the show because I think we have a guest here and ready. Look
0: at this guy. Can I tell you something, Bratsy? I reckon you've been taking the piss the whole time. You've had this link from the start of the show and you've only just managed to put your beer down and whatever else you're using to celebrate and join us at one55 10 minutes later.
4: I just wanted to to make sure Gazelle was on the flight before I before I got on, <laughs> so
0: He's been going hard. He's been agitating for you to get on the show. But he's a, he's, a, he's a bully to everybody. Every player that we have on this show, he's got to give them some stick. Look at him, little hoofs, struggling to type. He's such a <laughs> cool guy. But you know what? I love the banter that you guys have because it seems as though this culture within the Sydney FC team is just awesome. I want to congratulate you, Bratsy. Um, Amazing stuff. An incredible season from you. Of course, you made the PFA um, starting 11 the, the team of the season and then to go on and win the grand final, your first with Sydney FC after having made the switch from Melbourne City. It's just been remarkable for you. Um so I have to say massive congrats. How how has it been the last few days digesting it all?
4: Ah, uh, yeah, it's been good. It's been uh, it's been busy, uh pretty messy, but um yeah, it's it's hard to, to celebrate during COVID. Um but we're we're doing the best that we can and um yeah, like I said, it's been a great year. Um, and it was uh, it was all worth the sacrifice in the end because we uh, we finished with two trophies and um, yeah I'm just buzzing buzzing that we've 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 done it and um, yeah we we had a great bunch of boys as you can tell we're, we're pretty close and um, we like to enjoy ourselves and have fun as well so uh, yeah it was a good reward for the boys.
0: What feeling did you have coming into this season after leaving Melbourne City uh, and joining Sydney FC? Did you think uh, that you guys would achieve this success? Did you already start to get a sense that this was a team that have that mentality that can go on and do it again?
4: Yeah, of course. I think you look at Sydney over the last four or five years, they've been um, very successful. And and that's, that comes down to, to players, staff, Um Owners, board members, everyone driving a, a certain mentality of um, success. And um, when I joined Sydney, I, I um, you know, I, I could tell straight away that the the culture at the club was was second to none. And uh, yeah, they demand success, and um, yeah, they provide everything to, to be successful. And um, even in tough times like COVID, it's we've been uh, the staff, the the board, the uh, football staff. Everyone's been been great to us and given us uh, every chance to, to to be successful in the field.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Stolich, over to you. Some questions for Bratsy.
1: Yeah, Bratsy. I just wanted to know, um, you know, how this team compares. Sydney FC, very successful team, with the team that you played for in Brisbane. Obviously, another very successful team. What are what are kind of the similarities? What are some of the differences? <clears throat>
4: uh, there's a lot of a lot of similarities. Um, the, you look at the, the quality that we have um in in every position and not just the starting 11 but the 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 full squad we uh, we got young boys that you know in the ollie and uh, pushing for starts and i think if they went to you know some some clubs around the a league they would probably start um, in majority of them um same in brisbane we had we had a great squad um supreme talent all across the board and um i get i get uh, ninko and, and thomas brousch um asked a lot of questions about those two and they're very similar great players um and whenever i'm in trouble i, I give them the ball and, and they get out of things so um no look i think that our, our front two costa and um alfie were were great all year um cass uh bomby and, and ninko um even bernie tens um and then you look at the Kingy left back; he was he was fantastic all year. Uh, the G train Gowser at the back, and Wilco just standard. And then you got um, got the Joey Mars in at right back, uh, and and not to not to forget Redders and goals. So our starting eleven is the the talent that we have there. I'm sorry, Paulie next to me as well. Um, I think he goes he goes under the radar a lot. He does so much work for the team. Um, it's it's incredible. Um, you know, he doesn't get credit he deserves sometimes. So, you know, we, we've got a great great squad and a uh, great bunch of boys off the field as well. It makes it a lot easier.
0: Mm, a few questions coming in from our fans tuning in. Great to have your company, guys. Jesse Jenkinson via Twitter. How did it feel playing against your old club in the grand final? He wants to know.
4: Yeah, it was pretty strange. Uh, you know, I've, I've said uh, since I left City that, they're a, they're a fantastic club they're going to be successful one day and they had a great year this year um i think they were you know we apart from us they were one of the best teams all year as well um and yeah it's just unlucky in the final you know that, that happens sometimes finals are, are pretty crazy and i think the the game was fantastic and um i think we deserved it in the end but i think they were great value as well and they They pushed us all the way, Um, but yeah, it it was a, it was a pretty strange feeling. I still got a lot of good friends there and um, you know, uh, I, I wish them the best of luck in the future.
0: Mm, they are certainly a great club when it comes to resources. And this, of course, was the first time that they managed to make a grand final, um, in their history. But the match overall, Bratsy, how did you see it? Um, I know that Stolich earlier posed the question to, to Wilco, where he effectively said it looked as though Melbourne City were on top of you guys, particularly, um, in the opening stages of that first half. But, um, you know, things obviously started to turn in Sydney's favour, particularly in the second half. How did you feel, um, in the match? Look at her. How gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how, how did you feel during the match
4: uh yeah look they came out we we knew um, obviously they were going to be they were going to be come out of the blocks um you know hot and I think we started pretty slow um we weren't great the first 15 20 minutes and that's when they had um, their best chances I think um, we were hoping to start like we did against perth um I think we we played great in the first half but um, but it was the other way around uh i think they started really well they were on top of us for fi- first 15 20 we we couldn't keep the ball at all um yeah i was i was very average in the midfield and um uh wasn't helping poorly at all and um they were on top of us uh, and you know midfield is a, a, an important battle and we just release a lot of pressure when we keep the ball, and when when we're not doing that, um, we, we I think we, we drop deep and and teams get on top of us. So that was up to to me and Paulie to sort of wrestle that back. And I think, um, you know, you look at after the COVID break, um, if we started like that, we usually copped a goal. But credit to the the boys at the back, uh, they and us as well. They they kept uh, kept them out first 15, 20, and then we we're able to sort of wrestle it back. And I think. From the about the half an hour mark, I think we we're on top of the on top of them. Um I can't really remember them having too many chances apart from long distance shots. Um and then we created a, a fair bit and uh yeah, in the end we it took us to extra time, but we got there in the end.
1: <clears throat> Solid over to you. Yeah, Brad's just then you were talking about how you wrestle it back with power retro in the midfield. I guess just kind of you know, even for young kids is like watching and stuff. When you're in a game and you're going through that adversity and you're in central midfield and you're being pressed really well and you're losing the ball and you can't play out, how do you overcome that very quickly? Because it's not like you can wait till half-time or even full-time to sort that out. How do you go about, is it adjusting your mentality? Is it a tactical thing? Do you drop deeper? Do you do you move into different positions? How do you manage to wrestle that, you know, to start playing out and start being creating opportunities and being calm on the ball?
4: Uh, I think he's got to be brave. Um, I think that you know when when things aren't going right and teams are on top, football is crazy. There's the momentum shifts all the time. Um, and for me, Buster is a is a big one for us. He if he's not going on his runs and, and not getting forward and you know sprinting that you see that mullet flying down the right, um, I think we <laughs> sort of we sort of struggle a little bit. He's a he's a fantastic outlet. Um, and when you see someone like that sprinting forward tackling sprinting back just bringing that energy that it, it gets you excited and it goes through the group um and for me i think we just needed to to calm down um get on the ball uh, get me and paulie on the ball get our tens on the ball nice and early and get the full backs forward and um once they sort of i don't know if they tied or they took their foot off the gas or it was just us doing the right things but we eventually got got that uh, momentum shift back to a uh, our favor and, and and got on top of them and i think um for me it's just about feeling in in the game you, you feel where to move and and where to pass the ball and um obviously the coaching staff prepare us all week about what they what their um they do what their movements are and, and their strengths and weaknesses so uh yeah it, like you said it, it's tough to sort of get to half time then regroup um but as, as footballers, you, you sort of learn to adapt um, to different situations on the field.
0: You mentioned Buster there. Uh, in the absence of Ryan McGowan, who we assume has gotten on his flight, Ryan Grant, can you talk us through the boys' nickname, Rats, Pony, Chowie, etc.? Is that a no?
4: So I, I'm, I'm the pony. Um, How did you get the pony? I've got, apparently I've got a long torso and short legs. Um, so yeah, I, I'm the pony and um, I don't know why it's stupid of me, but me and my partner had uh, gals around for dinner once. Um, Cause he obviously left his family in, in Scotland uh, and now my daughter calls me the pony, which is, um, it's, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, she, he was he was smacking me on the bum with a golf club, saying "Go on, pony, go on." So now, if I'm sitting on the couch, she hits me with a golf club and goes, "Get up, pony." So that's it's not fun. Um, um, the other one was Chow-y. Um That's Marco Tillio because uh, he reminds me of uh, reminds everyone of, of Chow from um, The Hangover. <laughs>
1: um,
4: <laughs> there's a few others. Um, Harry Vandersug is uh is bruiser. Don't ask me why he just asked to be called Bruiser, because he's um, he just he just wanted to be called Bruiser, so that's his nickname. Uh um Gauzer's G Train. Obviously he wanted to be called G Train. Don't know why he's <laughs> not a train. He's very, very slow and should be Titanic, but um <laughs> I can't I can't go through all of them. There's um there's some very, very inappropriate <laughs> ones, but yeah.
0: Can imagine one last question on it before we um, move on and you can stop writhing uncomfortably. Um, how did Ryan Grant get busted?
4: I Honestly, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's, um, I think he's told me this, but it might have been um, under the influence of alcohol. Um, I think it's the, the rabbit from um, a, a cartoon. There's, I could be wrong. But I think that he, was, he must have liked the, this cartoon and there's a rabbit in the cartoon called Buster. He does have a tattoo of this rabbit. So maybe he yeah. can comment and, and, and tell us because um, he's obviously maybe watching he and trying to stitch me up.
0: <laughs> he stitched you up big time. I'm sorry. I had to ask the question. Um, a few more serious <laughs> questions actually coming in um, just to switch gears before we let you go. Tonka Tony, Luke, Luke congrats on the title. Do, you, do the guys fancy their chances for an ACL title?
4: Uh that'll be great. Uh obviously we we've got the squad to do it. Um, not sure what's gonna happen with the ACL at the moment. we are still waiting to see. Um, but I think we do have the team to to do something. We've we've made it a little bit hard for ourselves um, with our obviously results um in the first two games, but uh we'll we'll give it our best and yeah, I think touch wood we can uh, we can do something.
0: Stolic over to you before we let Luke go.
1: Yeah, look, uh, watching you in the grand final, you know, you played that ball into La Fondra, uh, for that where he should have probably got a penalty. You played the ball in uh, for Rhino where he scored the goal, you know, with his chest. Watching you play, I think you're such a wonderful passing midfielder. And maybe I, I just wonder, like, did Australian football kind of get enough out of you? Because you're a player that maybe Australia doesn't produce all that often, a really talented passing midfielder. I just wanted your perspective. Do you do you think you know now as as you kind of you become a bit more senior in your career? Do you ever think, ah, uh, you know, I, I could have even been a bit better or something with the right coaching, or, or you know, do you think you could have gone to an even further level?
4: If you watch that whole game, apart from the two passes, you wouldn't think I'm a I'm a good passer because uh, I think I kicked the ball out in the full like four times, including the semi final. Um, but, yeah, I think my, my strength is my passing um, and my vision. Um, I'm not the most physical player. So, um, yeah, that is that is my strength. Um, I wish – yeah, obviously, I, I wish I could have done more in my career. It's not, it's not over. I'm only 30. Um, so, I've got a good four or five years left in me, hopefully, depending on the body. But, um, yeah, I think football is uh, – you got to be in the right place at the right time, um, and obviously, I went to, to City and went overseas, and and whether it was me or or say coaches that I where I went didn't get the the right opportunity or didn't get seen or whatever it was, it, it didn't work out. Um, but yeah, I, I'm still hoping to to make a Socceroo squad and 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 play for for Australia. That's that's my my goal for my career. Now is I've I've done everything in Australia. Um, I've Won everything here, so I think that is my my main goal is to to get a Socceroos appearance. Um, that'll be a dream come true. Um, and yeah, I, I still want to play at the highest level overseas as well. So I've, I've still got goals, um, even though I'm a little bit older now. Um, and I got to – obviously I had a a decent year, but I I, I got to be better as well to you know to make that next step up. And I I think I'm not cocky, but I think I can obviously play play at a higher level as well. Um, so hopefully, yeah, I get I get a, you know, maybe someone watch and I get a move and and, and get an opportunity and and then it's up to me to take it. Um, but at this stage, I'm I'm enjoying myself at Sydney and uh, I want to win more trophies as well.
0: Well, we'd love to see you do that. I mean, to echo your sentiments, I think you're a wildly talented footballer, a very intelligent footballer, and and we also believe that you could do greater things at a higher level. So thank you so much, Bratzi, for making the time. Um, For those of you interested, you can head over to his Instagram page. And only 15 hours ago, the lad was drinking beer out of a shoe. So I'm delighted to see that your daughter's there and I'm hoping your missus is floating around as well so she's actually the more responsible guardian for your beautiful little girl. So thank you for making the time to chat to us. Um, enjoy the celebrations. Enjoy the party. I mean, it's been such a tough year for everybody, no thanks to COVID. So you guys deserve it. It's been fabulous to see you in this Sky Blues outfit and we wish you all the very best for next season, whatever the hell that looks like, brats.
4: Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me and hopefully see you guys soon.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks so much to Luke Bratton there. A Sydney FC star, of course, made the PFA team of the season. He was instrumental in the grand final despite the the four balls that he said that he kicked out. I thought he was wonderful. But it would be good to see him testing himself elsewhere on a more permanent basis, wouldn't it, Stolich?
1: Yeah, well, I think the goal in the grand final kind of encapsulated uh, Bratton a bit, like a wonderful world-class pass. That really was, you know... And actually, I think if you look at, you know, I do not want to kind of bring that up with him there, but if you look at uh, who he replaced that Sydney FC, Josh Brillante, I think he yeah. was a wonderful replacement. I think he's a better passer than Josh Brillante was yeah. and he brings that extra bit of his game that, you know, Sydney FC didn't have with Josh Brillante, who has other things, you know, a better engine, um, you know, that's what he brings to his game. But it was a fantastic pass. But when you're a passing midfielder, You rely so much on the intelligent runs of those around you, and that's why he was talking about, you know, Ryan Grant always being an outlet for him. You know, is going to be able to play under pressure and find that outlet ball, but you need those runs to be made. So sometimes I wonder with a player like him, had he been in there, had he been surrounded by you know, a higher caliber of players, would we have seen even more out of him? Had he been in a system that really supported his type of football, would we have seen more out of him? I think someone compared him to Chavi Alonso in the comments, which listen, be Alonso that's a big, big, big call, but I, I definitely know what they're saying in the type of player. And Xavi Alonso was a wonderful player, but You know, we know what Chubby Alonso did. He did those passes out and it relies on the players making the runs in order for those passes to be played and in order for us to enjoy that type of player. So, yeah, I just, I would like to have seen uh, Luke Braddon. I think he did really well under Ange, for example, at Raw, but he's very young. Um, I would like to have seen him in a system like that and with a coach like that more. Then, you know, kind of what we saw with Warren Joyce at Melbourne City, I think that was a a tough time for him and a tough time for us who are a fan of his.
0: Mm, couldn't agree more. Let's um, Before we wrap up the show, let's take a look at some other topics making headlines as well. And we've just seen the news that Brandon Borello has of course left uh, er, SC Freiburg to join uh, Bundesliga 2 outfit uh, Fortuna Dusseldorf and we've also seen the news uh, which is a few days late but it's well worth discussing in the context of this conversation that Aaron Moy has left um, Brighton and Hove Albion and will be joining uh, Shanghai SIPG for a reported $7.2 million figure. Um, we're seeing a lot of moves with our Australians abroad at this point in time we know that um, Tom Rogic as well has been rumoured to be leaving Celtic so there's a lot of movement happening Stolic, and not certainly the best of movement though in terms of um, you know their career trajectories we know that it's probably been made with the view of, of, of you know securing their families and their own futures going forward financially but um, from a football perspective there's not too much to gloat about is there?
1: No, and listen, uh, I know I was very disappointed about Rogic moving at 27. Aaron Moy, 30, I think, is a little bit more understandable. Um, but, you know, it is, it is frustrating for us as fans of the national team. You know, uh, and Barella, I think the move is good for him because he wasn't getting a lot of game time. Um, you know, he moves to the second division, hopefully restarts his career there, still 25. And the second, you know, Bundesliga 2 is a very high-quality league, so that's good. But the overall picture... We have two players playing the top seven leagues. And when I say playing, we've got a goalkeeper, Matt Ryan, and we've got Matt Leckie who played. Who started one game last season, one game. So effectively, you have no outfield players playing at all, which is a huge concern. You compare it to what we used to have, players playing at, you know, in all these leagues. So it's, it's incredibly frustrating. It's a worry in terms of when it comes to the World Cup. I think if you take this group of players, which is not as strong as it used to be. And, you know, there's a lot of good players in there, but no one's really playing in the top seven leagues. You take the inexperience that Graham Arnold has at this level, and I think it's a big, big worry when it comes to qualifying for the 2022 World Cup. And If we don't qualify for the 2022 World Cup, with all the domestic problems that we're having when it comes to the A-League, that's a recipe for disaster for Australian football. That's a huge loss of uh, revenue. It could potentially lead to a loss of interest, uh, both kind of from the public and and the commercial thing. So we really do need our Socceroos and our Australian players playing in some of these top leagues. And, yeah, it's, you know, we've got some young players coming in. Ryan Teague is playing under-23s football in Portugal. Uh, You've got Daniel Arzani, who we're hoping, you know, kind of starts playing at Utrecht. And and, uh, Rustic is also playing in the Eredivisie we need more and it's just it is a really i think a big wake-up call because we're constantly talking about you know the a league and all the issues there and that that is one of the causes of this problem but you know trevor morgan the technical director has a huge huge task on his hand because we need to get back up to speed very very quickly because while we've been stagnant for the last 15 20 years japan korea all these other kind of developing football countries canada even have really started to invest and they're starting to see the results look how many top u.s players going you know us in the u.s used to be quite similar now they've got a lot of good players christian pulisic uh chelsea you know they've got players at ajax they've got players um at rb leipzig we don't have that and we need to get back there and again i'll say it before you know Australia's a rich country. It's Australia's a sport-loving country. We have a lot of resources here. We need to start making the most of it. And I think it's a it's a big, big problem. And I'm very worried about the 2022 World Cup qualification.
0: Well, so are a lot of people in our comments section as well. Ivan Stragan, um, he's one of our top fans here on the World Game. It's great to have your company here with us once again, Ivan. Will Arnold come under the same criticism that Andrew Worth did if he isn't able to take Australia to the next World Cup? Stolich. Well,
1: listen, yeah, and- he got us to the world cup so that's one thing to point out there if graham arnold doesn't make it to the world cup he will i assume lose his job and be under extreme extreme levels of uh, scrutiny from the media but i'm just saying that i think actually the squad is not as strong as it was uh in the last world cup qualification and that's a worry um, you know, hopefully some of these young players coming through, maybe maybe that can really help us. You know, we've qualified for the Olympics. Uh, in theory, we're still going to the Copper America. That's going to be a good experience for us, hopefully. So maybe, maybe that's a positive to look at. But yeah, I mean, I think I think Gray Arnold already wasn't the most popular coach for the Socceroos. So I think if we start to see them struggling, he'll be under immense pressure and immense criticism.
0: Mm, um, Tonka Tony, he believes we will struggle to make the next World Cup with this crop. Des Giraldi, big hello to you, Des. Fantastic to have your company on our show, former A-League player. Great to see you still tuning in. Um, Great summation on Aussies not playing in the top leagues, FFA induced. It would be interesting, Des, if you could elaborate on that for us in the comment section and we'll pick up on that chat in just a moment. But some other news as well, um, some movers and shakers, are Tony Popovich and Spider, a.k.a. Rjelko Kala, Uh, They will be both departing for Xanthi FC. Tony Sage, Perth Glory owner, has come out and confirmed that, of course, he has left. Um, Some interesting news, of course, we heard about it the day after Perth got knocked out of the elimination finals, that Popper was destined for Greece, of course, which we now know has been bought by Australian Bill Pappas, who is affiliated also with Sydney Olympic. Um, But we didn't know what the terms were going to be like, if he was going to go, if they got relegated. They played in that second leg of the relegation scrap and they ended up losing it. Um what does this say to you? What does this move say to you Stolic? It's an interesting one for me.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it says that I mean, maybe we know this but it says that I think A league coaches value overseas moves even to the second division of a place like Greece, which isn't even one of the top leagues in Europe, uh over a position in the A league with a with a successful team in the A league and even with the ability to play in the Asian Champions League, which Popper would have. Um, But Popper, you know, I think Popper knows that if he's going to go to Europe, he needs to go, if he's going to have a career in Europe, he needs to go as soon as possible because the longer he waits here and, yeah, if he keeps doing, you know, semi-finals of the A-League, it's it's not going to result in a move to Europe, which is, I think, what he wants. I think he has a lot of ambitions. I mean, it is worrying, though. I think the second division in Greece... You know, it's not the strongest uh, league.
0: It spade, spade storage. It's bizarre. It's just yeah. actually. isn't it? I mean, we're not talking about it being the strongest league in the world for a reason because it's not. And I I just I'm I'm a little bit bemused by it all purely because Tony Popovich has achieved great things in Australian football. I mean, for him to win an Asian Champions League trophy is no small feat. So I think at that time, and look, I could be wrong. I'd love for Popper to clarify, but he he was offered a position in China. I think that the Palace job also came up again. And then it all seems to be pushed back by him for reasons that we don't know. But then for him to take that job in Turkey at Karabul Sport another club that was in a relegation scrap and now this move to Xanthi I just feel like it's unfortunately a step back for a coach who I truly believe deserves more given the things that he's achieved so far and his coaching abilities, no?
1: Yeah, coaching is one of those tough things where you have to strike while the iron's hot. You can move, especially when you want to move from continents and stuff. You you see this with South American coaches. When they're young and if they win like a a Copa Libertadores title, which is their version of the Champions League, they can make the jump to Europe and then they kind of need to make the jump from there on. Diego Simeone is a classic example and now he's in a big club. But if you don't strike while the iron's hot, if you wait a few years, those opportunities dry up very, very quickly. So... When I look at Tony Popovich, I think, okay, let's look at it. Best case scenario, he gets them straight back into the the Greek Super League next season, right? So that's good. But then you're still, you know, coaching a team that's been promoted from the second division. That's never easy. So best case scenario, what are you going to have, a top 10 finish, hopefully? Then maybe you get another gig, you know, in a higher-up team. You're probably not going to get a gig at Olympiakos or Panathinaikos or Ike Athens, one of the big teams. So you're still... I would assume Tony Popovich's kind of dream is to be in one of the top five leagues in Europe, right? You would think that's his dream. Mm-hmm. He's still going to be a few years away from that best case scenario, even if everything goes extremely, extremely well. So, it is a it is an interesting one. I mean, it's also going to be interesting to see what happens to his sons uh, who are at Perth Glory. I mean, this is a great test for them as well because I think they need to prove that they can perform. You know, without their father there, there was already question marks about that. I'm not saying.
0: I heard I heard a rumour, and it's not confirmed, but I heard that his sons could potentially go over to Xanthi FC. And that's, again, like I said, unconfirmed, but that's some of the mail that I've received on that.
1: I would say that might be a mistake. I would say Tony Popovich has a very strong reputation in Australia, and a lot of players here will respect him for what he's achieved. But I would imagine in Greece, players won't care all that much that you've, you know, had success in Australia, even you've had success in Asia. And then if you start bringing your sons into the team, that will be a kind of a red flag to a new team that's just been relegated as well. There'll be a lot of of issues within that squad uh, after a relegation season. There always is. There won't be a lot of unity. There'll be a lot of changeover. So I would, I mean, listen, they can do what they want and if they feel that's best for them, then that's what they'll do. But I would just assume (coughs) that that's probably going to cause some problems.
0: Mm, It'll be interesting. He'll also be joining, um, we know that Michael Valkanis is the assistant coach over at Ethniki FC, also in the Greek uh, Super League alongside, uh, I'm I'm still pretty sure that John Van Schip is there as the head coach. That was my understanding. Is that right, Tholich? Have I gotten that
1: wrong? Yeah, he's the coach of the national team over there, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it will be interesting to see. Time will only tell. But, I mean, I, part of why I'm just a, a little bit bemused by it all is because I think Popper actually deserves more. I think he's better than this second division Greek club, um, and that's no disrespect to them, but I think that um, everything that he's achieved, um, he, he deserves to be coaching at a, at a top level. And that is reflected in a comment too, Matthew M. Papas, if Musket can coach in Belgium, then so can Popovich. And that just speaks to the fact that we are producing a lot of top-quality Australian coaches, um, which has been fabulous to see for our development goals. Going forward, um, in the absence of seeing some some players really making it big um on the European stage. As we look to sort of wrap up the show, uh, Stolish, some other news items that have sort of come through. Um, MacArthur. This one's a really interesting one. Now they're charging four hundred and forty dollars for memberships to active support. Um, I was pretty interested in all of this, and in fact, maybe a little bit surprised that they would be willing to charge so much, um, notwithstanding the fact that we're going through COVID, but they are a new club, and I would be expecting that they would be wanting to encourage as many active supporters to be a part of them as they possibly could, and I don't necessarily think that charging $440, which is, by the way, the most expensive of any a led club across the competition is the right way to do it. Stollage. Stolich?
1: Yeah, I, to me it makes zero sense. I think one of the it's things. It's
0: doodle, is what it is. It's cack a bloody
1: doodle. Yeah, I think you've said it there, but it's just <laughs> one thing we talk about every you know time. There's a thing with the A League. How can we improve the A League? What makes the A League great? Blah, blah blah. Active support is so important, and they just seem to don't. They don't seem to get it. And you know, I always think kind of at the end of the season, I was thinking, no, nah, maybe we've turned a bit of a corner, and maybe. The people in charge are going to start making the right decisions. And this just tells me that maybe they're not because this is a pretty stupid decision to make. Uh, $440 for, you know, you're a new club so that you shouldn't be charging. You should be have the cheapest tickets, if anything. You, you know, you want to fill the stadium every week for your first season, right? Really generate a great atmosphere, you know, like the Wanderers did in their first season. Um, you know, you're a new club in an area that kind of already has a bit of a team in the in Wanderers at least, or at least that have some fans there. And also Sydney FC fans live in that region as well. Not that many, but let's see on that. So there's two problems there. Uh, yeah, a third problem is, you know, it's COVID, people are going to have less money, but also Southwest Sydney is one of the poorest socioeconomic areas in Australia. So again, why would you make it the most expensive? To me, okay, if there was some incredible demand and they had already had, 10,000 people demanding to be in the active area, okay, then you can say, all right, yeah, we're going to charge a bit more. But I don't know. It's just extremely frustrating. Uh, You know, the one thing that I really hope when uh, fans return to the stadiums is that we have great active support because I do think it is the thing that separates us from the other codes in this country. I do think it is the thing that's going to make people want to go to the stadium. It's going to make people kind of really feel the game and and invest in it. We we know we're never going to have... The highest quality players on earth. So, we need to create an amazing atmosphere for us at the game to really enjoy. So, it was just a big, big mistake from the Carper. I really hope they reconsider. I mean, if you look at the prices of some of their other memberships, they're still quite expensive uh, platinum mm-hmm. plus 540, platinum 490, gold 440, silver 370. I mean, general admission 280. I mean, how many games are they going to have? 13 games? You end up paying 30 30, $40 a game. To me, $10 inactive, $20 on the sideline. That should be it. And if you fill in the stadium every week, if you get in $10,000, $15,000, then okay. Then we can say, listen, we need to up the price a bit. The demand is so high. But I just think this this we need these teams to get on the right foot straight away. They need to be an injection of life mm-hmm. into the league. This is not the way to do it. So I really strongly urge MacArthur to reconsider this and really make sure that they have a strong, prosperous, active membership uh, going into the new season. Couldn't
0: have said it better myself. Um, very well surmised there. Stolich, van Stragen that's way overpriced. I paid $260 for a reserve seat at Amy Park and um, general admission at Docklands. So that just gives you the perfect example there. I mean, Amy Park, I think, is probably one of the best stadiums in the country for football. I've always loved watching it there. I've loved covering it on the sidelines there. I think it's just got a great sort of atmosphere, particularly once it's heaving full of fans. Um, and, you know, listening to the Victory fans all singing Stand By Me before the game, I just I love that it. it gives you goosebumps every time. Um, but it is an interesting talking point going forward for MacArthur. I think that um, we've we've seen a whole litany of storylines coming out of the club. Um, most recently as well, a few weeks ago, you also would have noticed that um, Neil Favager lost his case against the club. So they were able to walk away and, and shake the shackles of that um, looming court case that were hanging over them. So that's something I'm sure that they'll be feeling very relieved about. But going forward, we need more fans coming to the games. And like I said, I'm not sure that charging $440 for active support is a the right way to go about it. Stology... It has been an absolute delight to have your company on the show today. Another big bumper program for those of you that are just joining us—you've missed a cracker—and you will be able to watch it on demand a little bit later on. Um, but tomorrow at 1:30 PM, football journalist Vince Rogardi will be joining us, and get this—our very special guests, who of course have been tuning in today—and we are delighted to see you once again, the A-League meme boys! Woohoo! They've said save the Fornaroli to victory rumor for tomorrow. By the way, happy to di- dissect all of that and so much more with you guys. I'm Actually, looking forward to seeing who the hell you are, because this whole time we've been interacting with them, we don't know. We don't know. We cannot put faces to the A League meme boys. name. I know,
1: I know, I know a few of them. I know a few. Of
0: them. You know a few of them, mate.
1: Yeah, I know a few. I'm going to me. see tomorrow.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing if you guys are able to rec- replicate your humour online on screen with us. That's going to be the real challenge and that then I'll be able to determine whether or not you're funny. But one thing that we missed throughout this A-League season was the A-League Awards. So we'll be looking to do our very own mock awards show tomorrow and, of course, who better to get than the A-League Mean Boys to inject some humour and some serious, um, you know, um, opinions and some candour also from the great Vince Rigardi who is a bit of a funny bloke himself. So it's going to be a great show. Make sure you tune in 130. p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time for all that. Uh, It's been a pleasure to engage with you all here every week. We love coming to you. Tomorrow, of course, will be our last Thursday Thursday program for a while because it is our A-League dedicated program. But we're looking forward to chatting about football and so much more on our regular Wednesday slot. So make sure that you keep tuning into that. But Stolich, on behalf of myself and the entire team at the World Game, it's goodbye for now. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you again tomorrow at 1.30. Ciao.